Welcome to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 37. Uh, I guess just luck, right? Like, you know, like when we crossed, we could have got caught by the U.S. Border Patrol, but we didn't. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a few close calls where, you know, my dad's like, oh, you guys have to hide because there was ATVs coming, but it was just like regular people and ATVs, but we thought it was a Border Patrol. Yeah, my mom got caught five times just crossing and the Border Patrol got her four times and another fifth time she made it. My name is Alina Warwick, and today we have Eddie Garcia on the show. Eddie traveled on foot with his family from Mexico to Chicago, which took them several days. They crossed through the desert and slept in bushes to eventually cross the border. When they came to Chicago, they lived in an apartment with a total of 11 people and they only had one bathroom to share. It's crazy to think that he's now one of the biggest real estate brokers in the Chicago area. In fact, his company is ranked number 29 out of the 4,400 realty companies in Chicago. His company, Realty of Chicago, sold $370 million worth of properties only in the last year alone. So let's hear all about Eddie's journey and how he built his real estate company all with cash. Yep, you heard it. No bank loans no mortgages, pure cash flow. So let's dive right in. Eddie, thank you so, so much for coming on the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast. I truly appreciate your time and I'm really excited to hear all about your journey. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on here. Well, let's talk about your immigrant journey. Tell us where you're from and when did you come to the United States? I was born in Mexico City, Mexico. My, we were just super poor. Um, my dad always said, hey, this is what poverty is, and we're a few levels below it. So we made the journey to Chicago in 1989. So I was about five years old, and uh, we came to Chicago. We didn't have any family members here, so we were the first ones to come. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment with 11 other people. Wow. We used to sleep in the living room. I think people slept in the kitchen. So, I mean, it was just you know, but I, yeah, I was so young, I didn't know any better. I thought that was normal. So it was fine. Yeah. Where did the 11 people come from? It was just other people from like, like our pueblo from Mexico that we all just kind of came. And as soon as some came, others came. We were all super poor. So we didn't really have money to go rent individual apartments. So we just kind of yeah. helped each other that way. And I think we lived it like that for at least three, four years. And we lived like in a 20 unit apartment. And we lived in the one bedroom apartment and we had 11 people there. So, wow, it was definitely interesting. No privacy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet. I bet. <laughs> and everything was shared. I'm sure <laughs> everyone's clothes and food. And <laughs> oh, it wasn't a one bedroom, five bath. It was just one bedroom, one bathroom. So, yeah, it was it was definitely an experience to, you know, but stuff like that, you never forget. And it kind of always keeps you uh, grounded no matter how high you go. And. It's kind of, I'm glad I, I went through that experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll get back to that. But I really want to know, is that your parents wanted to start a new life in the United States? They, is that why they wanted to move from Mexico? Yeah, so when my dad had my older brother, my dad used to have to beg to be able to feed my brother. So, you know, he literally, you know, he's worked at the airport in Mexico City uh, selling donuts. And, you know, he just didn't see a way out of it. And then once my mom got pregnant again with me, you know, my dad knew he had to do something because, mm -hmm. you know, his paycheck from the airport wasn't cutting it to pay rent and, you know, clothe us and feed us. So he decided to jump on a plane. You know, back then security is not what it was, what it is today. So you could literally just get on a plane and and he got on a plane with his buddy. He didn't know where he was going to land. And he thought he was going to Baltimore. He ended up in Chicago. Didn't know anyone here. And back then, the blue line didn't go all the way to O'Hare. So he got out of the plane, ran on the runway, got on the train tracks, ran to the first station. And then he found a place to live. And eventually he brought us over here as well. So then he came through, uh, he flew here and then we, he came and got us and we uh, crossed through your traditional way more uh, where you yeah. go to the river or the desert. And I still remember that stuff because, you know, I was five years old. So it was kind of a, I mean, I thought it was like an, a cool experience back then, but now I realize how dangerous that was. 
Wait a second. So you guys travel through the desert on foot? Yeah, yes. We traveled because once you cross the Rio Grande, it's still a few hours in a desert to finally get to the first like little town where you can actually change your clothes. And, and I remember that my dad had clothes for everyone in Ziploc bags, you know, in bags. And I didn't understand why, but I understood once you get into like the sewage water, it's obviously you have to then take a shower and change your clothes, you know, so that was the reason for that. I remember being very, very thirsty that we didn't have any more water, you know, definitely an experience, you know, as five-year-old to remember that. Wow. So it was you, your brother and your mom that was traveling on this journey? Yeah. So this journey was just me, my brother and my dad. Oh, okay. What about your mom? My mom came later. So my mom, I've never asked why she didn't come with us, but I remember it took my mom almost five times to come here. She got literally stopped at the border five times and got sent back. But by the fifth time, uh, she was able to make it here. So, Wow, that's crazy. Oh, my goodness. So how long did it take you guys to just cross the border and go through all of that? Was that a day journey? Was it a couple of days? The desert and that stuff, I mean, well, if you count it from Mexico City to just the border, that's probably like a day and a half, two days. Then the actual crossing the river and then going to a desert, that's probably like another day and a half. And then we took a Greyhound from like the first city in Arizona, I think. And then we took to Chicago, which that took another two days. So almost like a week, a little more than a week. Okay. And where did you guys sleep when you were crossing the desert? Literally on like next to a bush. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. That's yeah. insane. That's insane. And you know what? I always talk about this, but the immigration process in America is so long, is so convoluted. And I completely understand how people are crossing the border because it takes forever to do documents and getting everything um, legalized. And I can totally understand how people are building a new life and creating a new life here in America and to have to go through that journey. That's crazy. And, and for you to, to, to go through that at five years old. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. No, no. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, what was it like growing up in Mexico and what parts do you remember? You know, from what I remember is more photos, but, and from what the stories that my mom told me, but it was just, to me, it was a good life. I didn't know any better. You know, I had my mom and you know, all my cousins and my aunts. And, you know, we lived like in a little, like little apartment complex. And yeah, it was fun. I remember, you know, just running around half naked, you know, little neighborhood. But yeah, other than that, it was just, you know, I was young. Yeah, not, not much. It was just, mm-hmm. I remember crossing the border, coming over here. And then whatever my mom tells me of how life was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so you said it, it took her five times to cross the border. And why was that? Uh, I guess just luck, right? Like, you know, like when we crossed, we could have got caught by the U.S. border patrol, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a few close calls where, you know, my dad's like, oh, you guys have to hide because there was ATVs coming. But it was just like regular people and ATVs. But we thought it was a border patrol. But yeah, my mom got caught five times just crossing and the border patrol got her four times. And then the fifth time she made it. Wow. Persistence. Look at that. Yeah, she could have gave up, right? But she didn't. She wanted to see her kids. So. <laughs> and how long did that take her? Was it, what was the time frame until you got to see her again? I don't think it was more than 60 days. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. So let's go back to when you guys first immigrated. You lived in an apartment with 11 people. Tell me more about the struggles that you guys had to go through. You know, I think when you're young, you don't know, you're very innocent. And you don't really see like the struggles that your parents go through. So I didn't know any better that it's not normal to live with 11 people in a one bedroom. You know, I didn't know that people could have their own bedroom and their privacy, you know, like what the American dream is. So I remember going to school, you know, we would have to walk to school, me and my brother, because my parents worked, both of them. My mom worked at a chocolate factory. My dad worked as a mechanic and they were saving money. And we were literally growing up with the other nine people that were there so but yeah i mean i still remember it was to me it was good memories i mean other than getting bit by a dog but other than that it was good i mean there was always food on the table there was always heat it was just your basics so did you guys grow up on government assistance you know that's one good thing that my dad always kind of prided himself 
I think back then it was called Snap, but we never accepted that. It was always, and he told me that once we kind of grew older, he didn't want us to be on that and that he didn't want when we have kids to, he took great pride in making sure that he told us that he worked hard for us and to make sure that we were clothed. But yeah, no, we didn't grow up on government assistance. Got it. Got it. Okay. So did your parents kind of know English when they came to the United States? How were they able to pick up jobs fast? No, no, they knew nothing. I mean, they uh-huh. literally came from Mexico. And my dad, I think he has eighth grade education. My mom has maybe like a fifth grade education from Mexico. So, I mean, yeah, they just, they didn't know any English. So they learned. Now they're very fluent. They speak English. But back then it was uh, getting lower jobs. I, I think my dad went to the first mechanic place and just told him like, hey, let me allow to, let me sweep for free as long as I learn the trade. So the owner said, okay, that's fine. If you're not going to charge me, you can sweep, you can clean. And if you learn to trade, I'll hire you. If not, then, you know, thank you, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just it was like an entry job at a factory and they took her right away. So I don't think mm-hmm. any, anything special. And how does she learn English? Does she take college classes? Did take some college classes and then she just learned it by watching probably English TV and just talking to people. But I mean, she speaks it well. My dad's very fluent, but my mom's, you know, more or less okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Fabulous. Okay. So Eddie, before you tell our listeners about your company, tell me a little bit about the path you took and did you try to go into any other fields before starting your business? I actually started at the age of 13. My dad, he gave me $100 and said, hey, go get an ID that says that you're 18 years old so you can start working. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) So I went to, in Chicago, there's a street called 26th Street where they have like a lot of illegal IDs and all this stuff. So I went there, got a fake ID and the ID said it was I was 18. So I literally went to work at the zoo. I mean, I worked at clothing stores. I worked at a grocery store. I worked everywhere. And I think, you know, I know I think about it, that kind of helped me develop like my brain and my social skills and everything else. So that when, you know, I was 21, 22, I already had, you know, five, six years of being in the workforce, interacting with the people, customer service. And, uh, you know, I would work every summer, every winter break, whenever school was off, I would even work during after school, after doing my homework. So it really helped me develop a lot of skills that I have now. I went to a little bit into management. I worked for this company, similar to a GameStop. It was called Game Crazy inside Hollywood Videos. And I started from the bottom as a, as a key holder. And then I got uh, an assistant manager job that I went to manage their smallest store. Then I went to ma- manage their flagship store in Chicago. And it went very, very well. And I thought that I was going to go into management. And my district manager really liked me. And he said, hey, you really have it. You could be a regional manager if you you know pursue this career. I've always been good with kind of managing people, leading, helping people uh, better their skills. And I enjoyed it. And uh, my store was always ranked very, very high. And then when I was you know climbing the corporate ladder, I told my dad and my dad you know, had this tough conversation that I didn't understand at the time, but I understand it now where he wasn't happy for me. He's like, and he just said like, son, like you don't want to ever work for anyone else. You want to work for yourself. Wow. And how old were you? I was 20. 20. And I had gone from literally making $7 an hour to making, you know, close to $40,000. And I remember I was so happy with like, you know, all these accolades from the outside world. And my dad was just not having it. He was like, no, that's not, that's not what you want to do. You want to start your own business. You want to do this. And I just, it took me a few years to accept it, but that kind of opened my mind to other things. And then, yeah, then I got into real estate. So. Okay. So tell me, how did you get into real estate? Did you have friends that were already in that industry? How did you pick real estate? So real estate, I got into it by accident because one of my dad's friends or the dad, you know, the person that helped my dad get his, her first house. I started seeing like things that he was doing. I was like, oh, I, I always asked my dad, what does this guy do? He always drove a nice car. You know, he had a, like a Mercedes S500 at the time. And I knew that was a car. And I said, what does he do? He's like, oh, he's a real estate broker. And I was like, that's what I need to do. So <laughs> I asked my dad if I could drop out of college. And he said, as long as you promise me that you'll be a millionaire by the time you're 30. And I was like, yeah, that works. <laughs> so I dropped out of college. I got my real estate license. 
And yeah, I quit my job at the Game Crazy store as a manager and I became a realtor. I had like maybe $7,000 saved to my name. And I remember I spent the $7,000 on ads, uh, like little billboards throughout the city. And I only had enough money for six months. So, you know, it took me six months to close my first transaction. I closed my first transaction. I was able to make $6,000, which I paid the next six months. And at this time, I was still living in my parents' house. So, you know, I was still being fed by them and living under their roof. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I mean, it was a very, it was a hard struggle. I remember my old boss, my first like broker owner of a real estate company, he like robbed me of $13,000 for a transaction mm-hmm. that I closed. And back then, $13,000 to me was a lot of money. I mean, it, would, mm-hmm. it meant everything. And it went through a lot of ups and downs. And there was a lot of times where I probably should have quit or, you know, I would have gave up. Did you say he robbed you out of $13,000? Yeah, he took $13,000 on a transaction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how old were you when you decided to go into real estate? 21 when I became a realtor. Okay, okay. Yeah, you couldn't be a realtor until you're 21 here. So I got my license at 21. And this happened around 22 years old. And I didn't know any better. So I just didn't contact an attorney. I just kept going with my life and closing other transactions. And... Yeah, but that happened. Then six years later, I decided to open my own office, which is, I named it Realty of Chicago. In 2012, that's when we opened, or when I opened it, uh, we had no realtors. We had no name ID. We had no brand, no structure. You know, we had, we worked, we started out of an 800 square foot office. We sold about $3 million worth of real estate, which is nothing. And last year, so we grew from $3 million. Last year, we sold $370 million. Wow, wow, what a journey. Okay, so how old were you in 2011 when you started Realty of Chicago? 2012, I think I was um, 26, 27. Okay, okay, so that's still pretty young. So when you were working as a realtor agent, um, I'm assuming you were working for, is it a broker company or a realty company? Underneath someone, right? Correct. Okay. So, and you did that for six years. Were you kind of building up your clientele, your expertise, your experience to eventually start your own realty company? Uh, That's a great question. I never envisioned opening, well, I never envisioned being a realtor. I think no one grows up and says, hey, I want to be a real estate broker. Yeah. And I never envisioned opening an office. The only reason I opened the office in 2012 was because I had friends that, for whatever reason, kind of saw my journey and saw what I was doing, and they wanted to work for me. So in my state, the only way you can do that is you have to have a physical office. So like literally, like we came from a club at six in the morning, and we decided, hey, let's open a real estate company and so I could have my friends work for me. So that's how it started. And you told that to who? My friends are like, hey, I want to be a real estate broker. What I got to do? So I told them what they had to do to get licensed. And they wanted to work for me. So then I found out that I had to have an office, a physical office location to have agents work under me. Yeah, I think if it wasn't for that reason, I probably would have never opened an office. It was never a dream, never like a vision to do that. Got it. And the reason why I was asking that is because maybe because you promised your dad by 30 years old, you're going to become a millionaire. So I was thinking... The next step for you is to open up your company and then to grow from there. But I'm sure you succeeded that promise too with your dad. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I think uh, I got into real estate and then I started investing in real estate, which helped me get to that goal fairly quickly. So I started, I opened another company called Rock Capital and Rock Capital buys properties in cash, fixes them and then resells them. And that's been very lucrative. The real estate sales also have been very lucrative. The brokerage just took it to like another level. Since we opened our doors, we've closed over a billion dollars in sales. Wow. So, I mean, like I said, going from extreme poverty to where I'm at today, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big blessing. And this is all stemming from your dad hopping on a plane, not knowing where he was going with his friend and he landed in Chicago, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He thought he was going to Baltimore. So this is something that shouldn't have been possible. I probably should have still been in Mexico. Um, yeah. I don't know what my life would be if I would be, if I would have stayed in Mexico City with my parents. So right, it's right. be, uh, like the American dream. 
And shout out to your parents. Oh my goodness. For them and, and for all their efforts, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so Eddie, how long did it take your business to start seeing some real traction in the beginning stages? You know, the average realtor sells between like seven and 10 homes a year. I think I was doing 20, 30 homes a year, fairly like on my second, third year. As a realty of Chicago or when you were solo? As a solo, solo agent. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, the average realtor in America sells between seven and 10 homes a year. And I think I was doing about 20, 30, 40 the first year. You know, I started, oh, so I mentioned I invested my life savings into ads. So I'm very traditional slash very millennial. So by traditional marketing, I do a lot of ads on the street. So I have, I started with six. Now I have 104 billboards all over Chicago and suburbs. So people, and they've been out there for over a decade. So people really know who I am on the street. We get a lot of phone calls from there. We're also massively big on social media organically. We probably get 70% of our business on Facebook Wow! without paying for it. We kind of teach that to our agents. So, I mean, if you're in Chicago market, you know us now. So we started with no brand, no identity. Now, no matter if you're in the North side, South side, downtown or suburbs, like, you know, Realtor Chicago and you've dealt business with us. So yeah, it's just a lot of hard work. At the beginning, I was, I had the ads. I was investing in traditional flyers. You know, I had my girlfriend at the time passing out flyers at the church. Her mom was passing flyers on the street. I eventually hired two people to help me pass out flyers. And I just started leveraging, growing and, you know, went from six signs to 10 to 12 to 20 to 50, you know, to 75. I really mastered Facebook because Facebook came in in 2008, I think, or that's when I joined. Mm-hmm. Um, by 2010, I started getting referrals just from people that were on social media following me. So yeah, that's more or less our, our key to success. Got it. Got it. Okay. So what makes Realty of Chicago stand out? What is, is there something that you can say it is our passion? Is it our drive? Is it our customer service? Is there some sort of secret talent that you can bring to the realty of Chicago because Chicago is a large city. So what makes you guys stand out? Yeah. So currently we're number 29 out of 4,400 offices. In no Chicago. way. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So I think what makes us different is we're a very young company as far as the average age of, a, of the agents here. The average age of a realtor in America is about 62 years old. And my average age is about 27. We're very millennial. We're, we were on social media before and did virtual showings before, you know, it was cool to do it. Now everyone's doing it because of COVID, but mm-hmm. and all the realtors had to learn it. Other brokerages had to learn that because obviously COVID happened, but we were doing it since 2010, 2011, we were taking professional photography. We had invested you know, a lot of money in hiring people to be our photographers. Now we have photographers on staff, videographers on staff. We have a writer on staff. We have graphic designers on staff. So all these people are literally all the tools that you need to really sell real estate in today's world because everything's on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. So... Yeah, it's just, um, I think that's what makes it special. You're just, my agents are so young and they grew up with an iPad or a computer. So to them, you know, translating sales now on Facebook and social media is very easy. Where I think your traditional real estate company is a little older and, and they had to learn these skills and they're a few steps behind. And that's what's allowed us to catch up so fast. Just using all the tools that are available. So that's awesome. So I saw a YouTube video of you (laughs) and it was something like a day in the life of Eddie Garcia. And I saw you driving around Chicago in a nice black Hummer. So (laughs) was that your personal driver? No, 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 no. So that's my, that is my truck I had for over 10 years. Okay. That was kind of one of my first cool cars that I bought once I kind of had a little bit of extra money. But that is one of my agents and we were just kind of going around uh, trying to kind of show people like what it is. I think that was like a 14 hour day or 15 hour day. 16 hour day. 16 hour day. Yeah, yeah. 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 When people ask me like, hey, what does it take to be successful? I mean, it doesn't. I mean, I, I always say that work beats talent. I don't think I'm the smartest. I don't think I'm the brightest, but I just think I'm the hardest worker out there. And 
I will put 20 hours if I have to, to fix the problem or to solve, you know, to solve an issue. And I've done literally, I think my first year in 2012, because now I had this huge responsibility, have to pay rent, you know, have an office, I have people that depend on me. So I think that year I was working from like nine o'clock in the morning to like two, three, four in the morning. Saturdays, we were there from nine to four in the morning. Wow. I was literally like just going home for a few hours to sleep, shower and come back. And I did that for a year, for years. I am for sure the first three years, it was 15 hour days every day. I had no life. I, you know, I sacrificed my personal life so that I can have what I have today. So in that YouTube video, at the very end, there was like a little snippets and it said, a 16 hour day, you had 185 Facebook messages, five in-person meetings, 15 Snapchat updates and 81 phone calls. Is that what it is still today? Or is that a little bit different? I think it's a little bit different now because I went from being an individual agent to overseeing over 150 realtors. So now my main focus is in inspiring them, helping them, taking them out to lunches, dinners, making sure that if there's anything else we can do to develop, hire new trainers, bring in new managing brokers, open new offices. We're going to open our fifth office this year. Wow. So it's more of a CEO position. I still handle sales, but I have a team that handles my direct sales. If I have a legacy client that I helped five years ago that really wants to go through us, then we'll still, you know, still meet with them. But majority of the time is spent with my team. But yeah, it's, uh, I think last year I did about 31 million, which is 118 transactions myself. Oh. And again, the average realtor does seven to 10. So whatever a realtor does in 10 years, I did it in one. And that's still on top of growing the business by 150 million year over year, even though COVID and the riots and everything that we had last year, yeah, our business still exploded and grew. Wow. Good job. So much hard work. <laughs> And then just one thing about the uh, the Hummer, I actually ordered. So since everyone knew me on social media, I was like, oh, you started with the Hummer and stuff like that. So I actually ordered the new Hummer that's coming out, the all-electric Hummer. So I can't wait till I get it in, I believe it comes in September, October. So, so it's like a signature piece because I, I know a lot of realtor agents do drive around with nice cars. You know, <laughs> is that like, this is a successful realtor. If he comes in a really nice car, I think the clients are like, okay, I, I think they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, it's just, I think everyone knew that I drove that Hummer. And even though like I had it for over 10 years, so it was like 10 year old truck and, but I still like kept it up and it was clean yeah. and people knew me as, oh, he drives like the black Hummer. Now they made the all electric Hummer kind of excited to get that and and get it in so I can kind of take a nice picture. I'm sure people will be like, oh, you started with a Hummer. Now you're back to the Hummer. Okay. So Eddie, did you have to raise any capital to start your business? And I know you said you had like $7,000 in savings. Was that when you were running it solo? What about when you were starting Realty of Chicago? So the cool thing is that I didn't, I always wanted to do it on my own and I never asked my dad for help. Yeah. It's, I, I think I had the seven, $6,000. And when I spent that money, I literally had no money left. When I started the brokerage, I was making a little bit of sales, but you know, I always invested. I always liked to feel poor. So what I always did is I always bought houses in cash. So I've mm -hmm. bought over a hundred properties and every single house I ever bought was in cash. So even if I made $200,000 in the month of October, I would go buy a property and then bring my bank account to zero again. So I always invested in real estate and the real estate investing really just kind of grew the business and gave me the capital to buy, you know, another office, another building, invest in opening a fourth office, a fifth office, invest in buying fancy computers, fancy printers, you know, whatever we needed, commercials on TV or invest in more marketing, invest in payroll. So yeah, just literally after 2012 was a great year, 13 was a great year, 14 was a great year, 15 was a great year. I mean, it just exploded to last year, just was an incredible year. Okay. So I do have to ask, normally realty transactions are always ran through a bank loan. So how did you develop your whole entire business model through cash? Did you eventually like save up money for your first property? And then when you sold it, you made that profit and you reinvested into the second house? Or how did you bring up this whole entire model of making everything through cash? 
So I learned in 2000, you know, because when I started real estate, it was the end of 06. And okay. we went through a huge recession in 2008. And I saw like, like the biggest players in town go under. And there was a big company in my neighborhood that was, he owned a lot of houses, he had a lot of offices, and he like lost everything. And that really kind of uh, stuck by me. So I didn't want to make the same mistake. And my dad's always been very thrifty and now he's very successful and he can drive almost any car he wants. He still drives like a, like 1994 Subaru. <laughs> he never flies first class. He's just very humble. So yeah. I always had that like, you know, mentor and I saw what happened to real estate in 2008. So the same thing I did with my billboards where I sit, you know, had my life savings of $7,000 and leveraged that to me to make some money in marketing. I did the same thing. Once I had a few sales, I think I had like maybe $32,000 in savings from real estate commissions. And I literally went and bought a house that was 31,500. And I had like $300 left to rehab it, to eat, to take my girlfriend out to eat. And I remember it was some hard times. Like I, when I bought the house, I had no money left and my house flooded. There was like a huge rainstorm in Chicago and my house flooded like three feet of water. I was yeah. depressed. I had no money. And my, my girlfriend at the time would literally stay with me in that house in the cold with no plumbing. He would like let me use money like to eat and to pay my MLS fees or whatever. And but remember that house that I bought, I bought it for like thirty-two thousand. I maybe put fifteen thousand dollars into it. And this was during the greatest recession, like in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. And everyone thought I was crazy that I had invested all my money. Uh, into a property when every like the housing market was crashing in a free yeah. fall. I sold that house in like December for 150,000. Wow. And you know, I was super young. I was maybe 24 years old and I sold that house for I sold it for 152. So I made I was all in maybe 50, 60,000. So I made like 80,000, 70,000 profit. And then instead of buying like an Escalator or Mercedes, I went and bought two other houses. I fixed those. I sold those. Then I bought four houses. Then I bought six. Then I bought eight. And I just kept going that way. And that's how I just kind of literally cash. But yeah, that's a funny story. When I went and bought my first nice car in Miami, I remember I wanted to get a bank loan just because I was like, oh, you know, like, let's build some credit. And I remember that uh, my banker at Chase is like, yeah, get whatever car you want. You know, you're fine. And I applied with Chase and it declined me. They only approved me for like a Kia. (laughs) <laughs> and I had to call my business banker in Chicago at Chase. I was like, hey, Chase is in Miami is telling me I can't buy the car I want. And they're like, what? Let me talk to them. So he called them. The salesman is like, there's no way you're going to buy this car. You know, you're just dreaming. And the banker spoke to the underwriter at Chase in Miami. said like, hey, this guy, he's my client, very successful. He owns all these property. And the underwriter's like, yeah, but there's no like loans. Whereas what's going on? I don't see anything. And he's like, this man literally bought a house in cash. Then he went to buy 10, 15, 20, 40. I handle his accounts. He's good. So then the salesman's like, I've never seen this before, but you're good to go. You could take the car. Yeah. So Wow. That's crazy. So you're just shown proof that being in realty, you can still have it made with cash transactions. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, even to today, like the, my, our main office is all cash. There's no loans. We don't have any credit card debt. Our company's very safe, very healthy because, you know, we never know if the market crashes tomorrow, we'll be fine. We don't have to be selling 1500 houses a year to pay the bills. So I've always never wanted to repeat the mis- you know, like what I saw in 2008 where people just went under. So that's why everything I still today, I still buy everything in cash as far as our properties, investments, and if the market ever pulls back and I need to sell something, I'll just cut it 20% and we'll still make a profit and sell it, right? Or keep it so the market yeah. comes back up. So, yeah, what a genius business model. So, good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Eddie, I wanted to ask you did you have any mentors that helped you out to start your business? I didn't. The real estate business is kind of cutthroat. And I remember I went to a few people that I saw they were top producers in my field. and. You know, I asked, maybe they didn't know how to ask correctly, but it just, they weren't open to the idea of helping because obviously then you're growing your competition, but it was literally just learning mistake after mistake. I remember when I listed my first property, meaning that someone wanted, said, okay, we're crazy enough to have you sell our house. I listed that contract on a buyer's contract because I didn't know any better. And I mm-hmm. literally off buyer and I put seller and that was it. 
the brokerage I started at was it was just a very small shop. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, and and all these like little like things that have happened to me is how I created it, like the company that I have. Right, having better managers, having trainers, having you know these resources because I understood what I went through. So now when I bring in new realtors, I want them to have a wealth of knowledge, wealth of people here. Like hey. We're here to help. We can help you with this. So I don't want people to go through that same process that I had to go through. So what do you think most prepared you to become an entrepreneur? Is there anything that you can see specifically that prepared you in any way? Uh, my dad. I always saw my dad work 15, 16 hour days. He had a full-time job and then he had another job. I would only see him on Sundays. And on Sundays when I saw him, he would make me read the Wall Street Journal. He would make me read a newspaper from Mexico before wow. I was allowed to go out to play with my friends. He would tell me I have to practice on the keyboard for an hour because back then, you know, people were barely getting into computers. So he knew that being able to type really fast and accurately was going to be a good quality mm -hmm. and skill. And yeah, I, my dad just, you know, always would tell me when I would leave the house, when I would go to school, he's like, make sure you study because you're illegal. And if you get bad grades, you're deported. So he told me that every single day you know, my way out to school. So it was just kind of like my dad always pushed me, pushed me, pushed me. And that's why when I came into, you know, I guess he prepared me to the real world because the real world is not nice sometimes, you know, like yeah. people taking advantage of you, backstabbing you. He prepared me for all that. So it was kind of good. I think if he would have nurtured me and sheltered me a lot, I wouldn't have been ready for this. And I probably would have quit and said, oh, dad, real estate was too hard. You know, I'm going to go do something else. So how long were you guys illegal residents in Chicago? Well, in the U.S., we were legal. So we were 12 years old. That's when we became uh, citizens. And what was that process like? You said that he kept on reminding you that you were illegal. Did you know, like, what the repercussions were? Or did you think that was normal? Or how was that transition like? I didn't, I didn't put too much thought into it. I just remember he would tell me all the time, but you know, I would go to high school or grammar school and I would hang out with my friends and I was just normal with them. Yeah. I'm sure. The schools I went to, there was a lot of illegal students there too. You know, we grew up in a 90%, you know, Mexican community. So, but yeah, no, going into school was normal, but I remember my dad would always remind me, Hey, you know, you're illegal. Make sure you study. I think he just did it just to push me, but mm -hmm. I would say my dad was my biggest mentor. Mm, yeah, so powerful. Okay, so I'm really interested to know, how do you look at failures and how do you overcome them? I think one of my biggest qualities or like reasons for success is that failures, I, I don't know if I enjoy them, but I take a step back, think what I did and I have to fix it. Also, another thing too is when I make decisions, you know, like, oh, we're opening a fifth office or we're doing this or we're doing that. Whatever we've done, I'm buying that property. I never think about it. I always just do it. You know, I never say, oh, let me sleep on it. I'll think about it tomorrow. We'll decide, you know, just even from when I opened the office, it was literally coming from the club. Like, okay, let's open it. Let's work it. This is going to be the location. Let's sign the lease. Buying an investment property, opening another office. I just literally just react and I don't do it. And I think a lot of people, they overthink a lot of things and it just slows them down drastically. I think a lot of people take failure very personal. Mm. Failure is almost kind of part of life. I failed so many times and I failed many times, but I just had a few good luck things that I've done good that have helped me. And now people remember those, but um, I've had many failures just like everyone else. And whenever something bad happens to me, I just keep moving forward. I'm already the next block a few seconds later. Like I just mm. don't care, I guess. Maybe it's a good word. Yeah, yeah. it just doesn't affect me. That's really good to put that in perspective to just brush it off. Sometimes it is hard if they're big failures, you know, but in the beginning stages when we're growing our businesses, the failures are not that big. So we can fail all the time. But when it's a huge corporation or when it, the company gets bigger, the failures can be kind of hard. <laughs> so I guess accepting failures as it is and, and keep on moving forward is the key, right? Yeah. And I, th I think it's maybe the opposite as far as like, I think. The failures at the very beginning are very crucial because every decision you make at the very beginning can kill your business. I mm -hmm. think now that we're at a large scale, it almost insulates us a little bit. You know, we make mistakes here and there, but we have so many managers now that 
all we do is focus on how can we build it better? How can we do it better? How can we help the agents? How can, you know, where do we have to open another office? What marketing, what do we have to do on social media? What's, you know, we're always thinking the next step. Yeah. So I think it's a lot, but yeah, we're, we're super careful, but you know, I think it's, it was just a lot more crucial at the very beginning, especially when I lost the $13,000 that the broker took from me. And that was devastating. I remember I was, I was super sad. I probably cried. Yeah. There was an attorney, like I was in Costa Rica for Christmas, uh, for New Year's. And the day, like literally it was, the, it was December 31st. I was closing my last deal. It was deal number 118 for myself. And an attorney like day day before just sent this email like, hey, just so you know, I'm the realtor of fact, you're not going to get paid. And I was like, oh my God, this is so crazy. Like I remember I got robbed $13,000 at the beginning of my career. Now this guy's trying to take like $11,000 from me. So you're from Puerto Rico, but now Eddie Garcia is completely different. I have legal counsel. I have an amazing team. And even though he tried doing it the last minute, the last hour before the end of the year, you know, we got our, our attorney involved. We got our superstars involved. And the attorney, like, I think a day later just said, oh, I'm sorry. Never mind. You're right. That's your money. So different world. Different world. You were definitely prepared at that time. Let's switch gears and talk about successes. Are there any successes that you would like to outline from your immigrant entrepreneur journey? And I know you've mentioned so, so many already, but is there anything else that you would like to add? I think right now what's going to take us to the next level is uh, we just signed uh, an agreement with a local college in our area for us to be the provider of real estate classes for this school. And that's going to help us grow to the next level because, you know, we want to get to 300 realtors, 400 realtors, 500 realtors. And to get to that scale, you know, we could do it the way we've been doing it as just referrals, social media, people walking into our stores, you know, referrals from other realtors. But I think literally the next level is this move that we did where now we potentially are going to have 320 students sign up with Morton College. And now we can probably hire a hundred of them. So that's wow. really going to help us grow in exponentially. So that's a cool success that we've been working on for the last few months. That's amazing because in college, they don't provide like a real estate major, right? Because the only thing that you need to do is get that realty license. But where are these classes offered or are they not offered? And how did you guys come up with that um, idea? Literally happened on social media. No way. <laughs> Someone uh, high in their uh, department reached out to us. Then I, we met with them. And when we met with them, we met with the president, like everyone, full board meeting. We, we told them what we're trying to do. And they said like, hey, why don't you offer your real estate classes at our institution? And then I was like, wow, that'd be amazing. So we've been working on it for the last three months. We're going to have our first class at the end of this month. It's going to be 80, 80 students. So wow. every quarter we'll have 80 students. And if we need more, we'll ramp up more. But but yeah, it's it's potentially, it's, you know, that's kind of our, something I'm very proud of right now. Yeah. We're to say like, hey, what's something you've accomplished? Yeah, that's awesome. And then, so no one else offers these classes? No, they do. So uh, there's probably like maybe 50 places that offer them. But okay. There's really no one that offers them like in our community. Everything's like far away, Northwest suburbs, downtown Chicago, North side. But to be like in our like neck of the woods, it's not many offices have done that. So we wanted to make sure that we provided that in our community. Got it. Got it. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited for that. Good job. Eddie, so what does the American dream mean to you? The American dream means opportunity, means you can change your life. This country has afforded me a lot of things. And now that I could travel the world and and see other countries, I mean, this country is still amazing. Just to be on a level playing field and you could do whatever you want when you come here. I mean, if you want to be on, on government assistance, you can do that. If you want to become the best manager at a company, you can do that. If you want to be an entrepreneur and no college degree and open, you know, get into real estate, which is uber competitive, and right. get into a, a field where you could succeed and, and fight with the best and you can do that. So to me, the American dream is it's incredible. I feel like I'm living it right now. I'm very blessed. Now what I'm trying to do is bless others by trying to help them also achieve what I did and letting them know like, hey, I came here illegally. I'm brown just like you guys. I didn't know any better. And if I can do it, you can do it. So yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And that means that anyone coming here from other countries, they can reach their American dream as well, right? Correct. Yes. So is giving back either volunteering time or giving back to the community something that is part of your business values? Yes. So, you know, for me, the reason why I've given like the school supplies is because I know what it is to go to school with an old school bag. You know, once you get older, you start realizing that you're poor, right? When you're five years old, six years old, you really don't notice it. But once other kids start making fun of you or you start seeing that they get new school supplies, stuff like that, you do realize that you're not the same as them. So every time that we do, every time that we give out school supplies, when the school year starts, we get them name brand Elmer's Glue, Crayola Crayons, scissors, folders, notebooks, really nice school bags, not the cheap ones. When we do the Thanksgiving, we give out thousands of turkeys every year to families in need because we also didn't have, you know, a turkey for Thanksgiving. So just kind of, you know, stuff like that. I'm very blessed to be where I'm at. So I always encourage it. I get businesses around us to contribute and make the event even larger. I think this year we fed 20, we fed 15,000 people. Since we started the program, we fed 50,000 people. So it's a blessing to be able to give back. And the school supplies are going to where? Just in the neighborhood, you guys are passing them out or are you guys partnering up with someone? So we put it on social media and I've done everything in social media. <laughs> put it on Facebook and we just literally put a flyer out be like, hey, we're giving out school supplies. And, and because we've been doing it for so long, people already know it. They kind of message us already. Hey, are you guys giving, when are you guys giving school supplies? So people always kind of expect it and something that we've done, almost a tradition. And our lines literally go for blocks. This year, For we did it at the Thanksgiving event. Man, the line must have gone eight city blocks in cars. People were just like, literally like, it was amazing. I mean, it just literally kind of crushed my heart at the same time, but to see the need in the community. But for eight, at least eight city blocks, just like people up in their cars um, waiting for a turkey. For the school supplies, people will line up and it's just all these little kids come in and we don't ask for IDs. We don't ask for registration. They don't have to be from our town. They can be from anywhere. The cool thing we did this year with the turkeys is we opened it up to all our offices. So all four offices at the same time on the same day gave turkeys away, which is pretty cool because even then we had eight city blocks at our Berwyn location. All their other offices were jam-packed as well. So that just kind of tells you how drastic like the need was in our communities, how they were hurting because of COVID and, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. So what an amazing part to be in, to be blessing the community that you're surrounded in. So that's so, so awesome. Eddie, what are some things that you would advise the next aspiring immigrant that wants to start their own business listening to you right now? I tell them it's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of hard work. Don't give up make decisions without, you know, just make them fast, take your losses, learn from them. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be very, very hard, very difficult. But if you really want it, you'll, like I told you, I didn't have money to eat sometimes. Like I remember my girlfriend at the time would have to feed me and give me money to like literally feed me. It's so crazy to be able to say that, right? Like I remember I didn't have money to take her out to eat or to pay my bills. So Literally, I struggled immensely, but I know that I wanted it more. So, yeah, so even though when I had all the, you know, I fell on my face so many times, I got back up and eventually Mm -hmm. it got better. And as long as you learn from your mistakes, you'll be fine. You know, it's okay to make mistakes. Just learn from them, improve from them, and you'll be okay. So, so powerful. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so to wrap up, I have some super fast questions, um, if you're okay with that. Yeah. Okay, what time do you normally start your day? So now my my life is getting a lot more balanced. Before I was working 15-hour days, and I've always been kind of like a night owl. So I always would stay two, three, four in the morning to work. But now I wake up probably a little earlier now. So I'll wake up maybe 6.30, start responding to emails, check with my assistant, see if there's any issues for the day, look at the calendar. But I don't usually get into the office till maybe 9 o'clock. And then I have, you know, my meetings have changed now to just making sure that my agents are good. What what next moves are we going to make? And I'm trying to leave the office now by six o'clock. And then usually I have 
dinner with one of my agents or I have lunch or something. But, but yeah, my days are a lot, are getting a lot better than before. Good, good. So happy to hear that. <laughs> but we have to understand that it was not like this in the beginning stages. So <laughs> well, if you talked to me three years ago. I mean, I was literally 15, 16 hour days. I think there was a day that I, I don't remember if I, I didn't sleep, but I mean, I'm just, it was just, I mean, to get to where I'm at took a lot of work, a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of not going out, but it's something that now has paid off and I'm really happy where I'm at. So the next one is how many employees do you have? And I guess it will include the agents as well. Uh, with So we have a construction company, we have a media team, we have agents, we have staff. I would say probably, probably close to 200 now. You have a construction company? Oh, the remodeling one. Yeah, so all our projects get done by our construction team. They've been with me for over 10 years. We also have a staging team. So now, you know, we offer on top of professional photography and videos and, and graphic design, we will stage our clients' houses. We will paint their houses. We will make these houses as amazing as possible so that when they hit the market, they sell. So that's literally like sets us apart from most companies that don't have those services yet. Yeah, you guys are a one-stop shop for everything realty-related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the next one is, how often do you watch TV in a week? You know what? I probably read uh, four to five hours a day on my phone, but I don't watch as much TV as I used to. I'm a big uh, movie guy, but right now with COVID, it's kind of been very depressing because the, the movie uh, studios have stopped filming, so literally no good movies have been coming out. But I try to Netflix here and there on a Sunday. I try to take it off and just watch TV, watch a football game, kind of clear my mind. And when you say you read, you read like books on your phone? No, I read like Wall Street Journal, Chicago mm -hmm. Tribune sometimes. I mean, any news article. By nine o'clock, I've read everything that has. Oh, okay. Okay. And the last one is how many hours of work do you normally put in on average in a week? Probably 60. And that's now. I mean, before I was doing a lot more, but yeah, about 60. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, Eddie, thank you so much for coming on to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast. What an amazing journey to have traveled through the desert and to become who you are right now. What a successful business you're running. Lots of different businesses too. And I wish you all the best of successes and I hope to stay connected with you in the future. Thank you so much. Best of uh, luck with your program as well. And thank you so much for having me today. All righty, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. If there are any links that were mentioned in this episode, make sure to check them out on my website under this episode to find all the links conveniently located in the show notes. I just wanted to ask for a quick favor. If you could please leave a review wherever you're at listening to this podcast. Also, if you're an immigrant entrepreneur and would love to be on my podcast, please email me and we'll get connected. I'll see you guys all next time for another exciting and impactful episode. Take care.